Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So um, we, we've been planning this episode out, so I, I'm going to go first. Um, what is astonishing me this week, um, what is giving me life, <laughs> is um, a really great um, uh, bit that Kev on stage has done um, uh, based on um, Toby Nawigla. Nawigwa? Is that how you say Nawi- it? Nawigwe? Nawigwe. Yeah, Nawigwe. Um, he has a song that's out that you might have seen all over social media. Um, it's called Try Jesus. <laughs> Don't try me <laughs> because I throw hands. And then um, Kev on stage said he was really upset that he hadn't been invited to uh, sit in in the studio. So he he fixed it and he released a version of himself sort of um, talking back to it. And I'm going to play a little bit of it right now. Try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. Try Jesus, try Jesus, please don't try me, don't like hell, because I find. I know what it's Um, because A, I can't get it out of my head. B, I think if you if you listen to it, like both the original song and um, have on stage where he's riffing off of it, you just see that like it's satire and like the best satire is portrays that you're deeply, deeply familiar with the tradition. So when he says things like, you know, and I, I will fight and he says, um, and I'm not talking about in the spirit, I'm talking carnally. <laughs> he says like, the, I want the spirit of Peter to fall on me, meaning Peter is the one who um, cut off the ear of the soldiers coming I, or the servant of the high priest who is coming to arrest Jesus. And um, honestly, like not to get all, like make something that's meant to be fun and cathartic into something serious. But like, I was also this week um, ran up against a new, um, just a, a new to me, not, not new in general, but a woman and her name is, um, Rachel Carg, it's C-A-R-G-L-E, Cargley. And she does like a lot of, um, anti-racism training and awareness. And, and she is specifically really talking to white people and sort of saying, um, here, here's what it means to do the work and what you need to unlearn and what you need to do. And she, it just made me think that I became familiar with her work this week. And there's a good, um, a really good profile piece about her in the New York times, if anyone hasn't run across her, but she does this thing on her platform called Saturday school where, um, on, um, and you can follow her on Instagram and she, um, on every Saturday will release like a letter or a comment that someone has sent to her. And then she like 
diagrams it. Like, you know, if you get a paperback from college or grammar mm. school where it's like marked up and there's like notes or whatever. And so she, she marks up these comments that are always um, by white people and this white people like responding to um, what she teaches and, and just pointing out just some of the like logical fallacies, like ad hominem and whataboutism. And, um, but also just like, like just the discrepancies of the way that we um, stereotype and bias uh, people of color in general, but black people in particular, that like a song like this, try me thing, um, people get white people often get really offended by it because while on the one hand, um, white supremacy teaches that black people are inherently more violent and dangerous. And so people must be protected from black people. But on the other hand, crazily, it also teaches that black people are just more forgiving and generous than white people. And so yeah. there's this expectation mm -hmm. that on the one hand, you know, you need all of this structure and, and injustice and brutality so that white people can be protected from black people. But then when something like, um, you know, the mother Emanuel shooting or something like white people, um, sort of will expect a level of, um, forgiveness and long suffering from black people and, and celebrate black people for that. Um, and so the song, you know, sort of the, um, Toby, um, Nawiga, um, song sort of plays into this idea that like, just because I love Jesus, don't presume that you can, you know, that white people just presume on, um, on the faithfulness of black people in so many ways. And there's just this deep irony of how, of how white people expect both. Like on the one hand, we justify all kinds of structures based on this bias that, um, the black people are inherently more violent. And then we, um, expect not to be held accountable because we go, oh, well, black people are just more serious about Jesus and more forgiving. And so, um, I, I just, anyway, I've just been, A, I've just been enjoying the song and B, just thinking about, oh yeah, that's, that's a true thing. Well, uh, you know, it's in the long line of, um, this tradition of black Americans, um, being in this, nightmare of American racism, uh, this um, this crazy, insane environment. And one way to keep your sanity, one way to continue to see clearly, one way we communicate and uh, say to one another, you are not crazy. This is crazy. We are not crazy. One way we do that is through humor. And this just has a long history. And um, I'm not surprised that in this uh, season in which we are fighting the dual virus of COVID and institutional racism, that um, there are <laughs> um, uh, many people uh, of my people who are just making things that are just really funny because we have to laugh at some point just to keep our sanity. Laugh while we fight. Laugh in between tears. The humor is a part of the um, it's it's the it's the subtle um, 
undermining of the walls of Jericho, right? So we, mm-hmm. we, we see this crazy thing that looks like it's going to stand forever and we can laugh at it. We can laugh while going through it. Um, but yeah, the song is, is it, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and you're exactly right, as Black folks, we walk this line of, okay, when do I just go off? And just be yeah. the angry black person in the room. And when do I need to um, softly navigate a space? Yeah. And sometimes, listen, this is also in the tradition of, you know, the uh, civil rights activist, Fannie Lou Hamer, who said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So yeah. listen, try Jesus, not me, because I will. I lay hands. <laughs> some saved, but not delivered. I the will spirit of Peter is resting on me. I know it. It was. Um, it was giving me a lot of joy this week. So, what is astonishing you? Well, I am astonished. Well, like a lot of people, I have been watching the coverage, um, celebrating the life of uh, civil rights legend and uh, congressman uh, John Lewis. And because, okay, the contrast here does not make me look good. I'm no, it's <laughs> no, no, it's. <laughs> Actually, see, from my perspective, these two things go together. Yeah. Um, they, 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 this is not, um, from my perspective, it's not a contrast. It is, uh, the, these are things that we hold in tension all the time. You've got to laugh, you got to cry, and you got to fight, mm-hmm. and you got to love. All of those things are true. And so this is, um, this is part of it. Uh, but I have been uh, watching the coverage and, you know, because I was born in Mississippi, because I grew up near Memphis, there's there's just a lot of the civil rights movement history that I know just because it's in the air. It's just it's yeah. just in the air when it comes to black people. And so, you know, I know about the Freedom Rides, um, you know, challenging segregation laws. I know about Bloody Sunday um, when uh, John Lewis and others were crossing the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, and, uh, and 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 they were protesting um, uh, police violence. Uh, I, I know mm-hmm. about his his uh, uh, activism as a student, his leadership in the wa- March on Washington. But what astonished me was something I learned about his life that I had no idea. And I was doing something else, and the television was just on, and someone was giving his bi- biography. And um, I did not know that this man had a theological degree, that he graduated from the American Baptist Seminary in Nashville, and that he was an ordained Baptist minister. I had no idea. I did not know that. And for me, that put put his life in, 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 in focus, right? Not only as a civil rights leader, as a congressperson, and as a human being, you know, I could see that this man was just living and leading in the nonviolent way of Jesus. Uh, and that, <laughs> and that is a bit of contrast to, I got hands, but uh, <laughs> it, still, it still fits. Um, yeah. But, but what occurs to me is that I hope that in this hour of our country, one of the things we recover um, is the, truth that civil rights, although it's played out in the arena of politics, is really about theology, right? Yep. It, yep. It, not theology in the academic sense, but um, but the sense of 
who God is, what God says, and what God requires of us. Well, and and from our knowledge of who God is, we derive our constructs of righteousness and justice and humanity and community. And so all of these things, I mean, grow from theology, and which is why I think you can look at a lot of people who are who are having their letters deconstructed at Saturday school by Rachel Clark Lee and say, your theology is terrible. You're, you know, and like an example of that I was thinking about is, I mean, there's a really interesting um, amount of pushback to the Black Lives Matter movement and, and specifically the organization from evangelical and Pentecostal Christians read mostly white, but but not all white. And there's this huge pushback that says, like, this is an evil organization, it's anti-family, it's Marxist, blah, blah, blah. And I just think it is so interesting that that somehow what feels righteous to you Christians is to denounce the Black Lives Matter movements instead of to recognize, since if if that is the case, and I personally do not believe that it is, but if that were the case then what it should lead to is deep repentance on the part of the church that since the church was so silent and and negligent in proclaiming the holiness and sacredness of Black lives, and since the church was so silent and negligent in bearing with one another in love and doing the prophetic work of calling for justice from their considerable position of power, isn't it so sad that since we didn't live out to our ideals, the Lord has to raise up people to work from just for justice from another sector, right? Like I am so tired of listening to Christians dismiss the whole Black Lives Matter movement because it's somehow theologically suspect, but have nothing to say about the theological bankruptcy of their own church that the only thing you want to talk about is what's the matter with that organization and you don't have anything to say about what's the matter with our nation mainly because you think nothing's the matter with our nation because the police aren't shooting me in the streets and my voting rights are not a threat. So yeah, it's, it's amazing that um, people are giving the critique of the Black Lives Matter movement without also turning that same critical eye upon the reason that movement even exists, right? So yeah. that, that's the hypocrisy. That's the... Uh, that that's the blindness, and I'm that also, is uh, seeing seeing the gnat in your neighbor's yes. eye, mm-hmm. and not being able to speck, and not being able to remove the log from your eyes, and straining out the gnat but swallowing the camel yeah. is what Jesus would say. Well, and also, it is very easy. Well, l- let me just say this: I was watching the news yesterday, and there was a local woman on our local, one of our local news stations. She was being interviewed, uh, African-American woman. Two of her sons were killed a couple of years ago. And um, I I believe gun violence uh, by another black person. And she was saying, she, she was being critical of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I get her point of view. I understand her point of view. What I don't like and what I disagree with is white evangelicals weaponizing her pain against Black Lives 
web black lives matter and that's that's um i think that's what's happening let's say you have a large evangelical church with a few black members and let's say um because they're trying to navigate that space in a really difficult time so either they're gonna be try jesus don't try me because I got hands. They're going to either be there or they're, they're going to hold back a bit. And they're, they're not going to be full-blown, let me tell you how what I think and feel. And so why evangelicals in that space will take those folks who are not who are who are not on board with Black Lives Matter and weaponize that and say, see, even these black people are right. not on board with it. And uh, that happens so much because, listen, that's just easier than facing the ugliness, right? The ugly reality of what's happening. It's easy to say, well, no, we can dismiss this whole movement because we know a couple of Black people who don't agree. Yeah. I mean, and just this idea that essentially you're saying until there is no crime within this racial group, we are not account like you know, police officers who are have sworn an oath to serve and protect. They can kill black people with impunity until black people stop killing black people, and that that's insane. But that is when you extrapolate out their argument, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, whatever. Like the, I mean, the label on that is whataboutism. So you're saying like I'm not talking yes. about citizen against citizen crime. I am talking about police against citizen crime. And you're saying that since this other thing exists, the thing that I'm talking about doesn't matter, which is ridiculous, not to mention the well-established and documented fact that every racial group is at greater statistical um, percentage threat of being harmed or murdered by a member of their own race. So we never talk about white on white crime, but white people are more likely to be killed by white people. So, I mean, there's just, there's no difference, but they lift this up as if there's something ontologically different about blackness that makes black people more likely to kill black people, but white people are more likely to kill white people because people are more likely to kill people they know, kill people they live next to. And where does that come from? Cain and Abel, right? I mean, the reality is the people we share life with are the people we are most likely to love and the people we are most likely to harm. And so it's all, it's just all of these, um, you know, ridiculous logical fallacies that we cling to in order to justify a system that's unjustifiable. And, um, but I mean, what I, what I love the most is to see all of these, all of these people who, who profess and mean and and with integrity, their their love for Jesus, but then essentially say, well, it's too bad that black people are being killed. But what I really want to talk about is Black Lives Matter as a Marxist organization. I'm like, no, this is yeah. this is just not this is not compatible with the ethic of life in the gospel of Jesus. Well, Christ. it's at least in my mind, it reminds me of what Paul was fighting in Galatians, right? So Paul was fighting this group of people in the church who said that 
Christians needed to return to the law, right? Um, and I forgot already where I was going with that. Ah, I well, forgot they were, where I was... in. They I were asking going for it. circumcision, right? They were saying yes. that unless you were circumcised, you weren't in line. You weren't fully experiencing salvation of Jesus. Yes, but I had a point related to Black Lives Matter, and it just, it left me that fast. Well, I mean, I suppose they seem to be saying, I mean, the connection I could see is saying until crime within this community is taken care of, we we don't have to recognize and solve the problem of crime against this community. And that's just not, that's not valid. But I don't know. I don't know how you're trying to tie Galatians into that. I, I'm sure I, it, 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 it was clear in my mind when I started talking and it just, it left me, it left me, it left me. And as soon as we end this we podcast, I'm going to go, oh, that's it. That's what I was going to say. Well, you have social media now. You can use it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, so that was what was astonishing you. What are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about a couple of things this week. Uh, Number one, listen, you know that I am not a huge sports fan. I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a medium sports fan. I tune in. I mean, I like watching games. I'm pretty ambivalent about the, um, the money and power uh, in sports, but for the uh, last two weeks, you have what has astonished you has been something from the what <laughs> the wide world of sports. I'll really? just point out. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. First it was um, first. It was the change in the Washington team. And, oh, that's right. And last week it was it was something else. Anyway, so. You might not be that into sports, but... <laughs> but I'm kind of into it. Yeah. Uh, so this past uh, weekend, I watched uh, a WNBA game, and I haven't seen one of their games in a good while because they're really not on um, the major networks anymore. And because of COVID, they're in this arena, no fans in the, in the stands, and you can hear the players talking to one another as they play the game you can hear loud and clear the the squeak of 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 sneakers it was it was a much better experience it was an exciting game to watch um i really enjoyed watching that game and you know they have de- dedicated this year this season to uh brianna taylor uh, their Black Lives Matter printed on the court. Um, I believe even the um, the refs had Black Lives Matter on their um, on their shirts. And like you have never in in the eleven years that you've known me, you have never seen me in like um, a jersey, any kind, any kind of sports jersey, any no, kind no. of. No, not, not even. It's bigger than that. No, I have never seen you in a shirt that does not have a polo pony on. Wait, exactly right. Not even a team T-shirt or a cap. But nope. I am thinking about like going to the WNBA store to buy some gear. I'm like, I really want um, uh, some of their gear. I'm when the WNBA started, I was all in. Watched a lot that first season. I watched so many games and it's been a while and I'm, I'm back in. Uh, and so I'm just thinking about the, um, uh, that league, but also 
uh, I mean, this is a league of mostly black women. And mm-hmm. um, in all of this talk about police violence, um, you know, and there have been a number of black men killed and uh, not as many black women, but we need to especially remember uh, Breonna Taylor. And I, I just think the WNBA is doing a phenomenal job of that. Um, and they've, they've gotten her, her mother involved and, you know, I'm watching this game and, um, you know, they're interviewing players and I, I, I'm, I'm crying watching um, yeah. this game. And so I, I was really, um, I, I guess the word is proud, um, inspired uh, by these players. And so that's on my mind. Um, and the other thing that's on my mind that I'm thinking about this week is um, I, you know, preach in a space that's historically white. And I've been thinking about a message to black Christians. And it's a message that I've been given to myself, been giving to myself uh, over these past few months. And um, I want to say to black Christians, uh, this thing that I've been thinking about, and it's this, that you do not have to choose between your survival sanity and self-care on the one hand and advancing justice on the other that you can do both both and i don't know if others i assume others feel the same kind of tension that i feel that it's it's you know i gotta i gotta get through this i gotta just take care of myself and and not uh be so involved in the work of justice or i've got to be involved in the work of justice and you know my mental health and my physical health go down the drain, but they're really, they really work hand in hand that even the work of, of keeping your sanity in this crazy experience called America advances justice. Right. And so I've been thinking about that message and living in the freedom of, of allowing myself to uh, do both. Well, and I, I mean, I say, I mean, I think and we've touched on this before in other conversations, definitely personal conversations. I don't know about the podcast, but I, I think, and I counsel like my friends who are black women a lot, just that self care and rest is a, is, is subversive and it is, um, it's a radical act of resistance, right? In a, in a culture, in an empire that basically says you're expendable and you only matter um, for as much as you can produce. And, and here's a standard that you can never attain. And basically like we are watching to see if we deem you worthy of full humanity to, to um, care for yourself and to rest and to value your own life is a radical act of resistance and subversion. And so I think that's really um, just important. And, and then honestly, like to myself and other white women, I think um, we, you know, the world tells us, um, you know, <laughs> you're worth it and just indulge yourself and treat yourself. And, but, and so I think we need to really be told not, I mean, rest is a, is a fundamental 
human right. And mm-hmm. we are all called and given the gift of Sabbath. But, um, you know, we need to understand that our act of subversion and resistance is to um, in practice intentional holy discomfort. And so, whereas, you know, I have friends who say, Black friends who say, I can't watch that video. And I say, good call. And then white friends who say, I can't watch that video. And I say, no, we, we right. have to watch this video because we need to be disturbed. And, you know, you think like, oh, I know. You think like, oh, I don't need to read how to be an anti-racist or I don't need to do this work because I already agree that it's bad. But the reality is we, we don't know. And so we have to make a commitment to, um, to engage on a way deeper level than the culture would like us to engage because that's the only way that we gain the urgency that we need to use our power to disrupt the system. So I, I think that that's really true. And I think, you know, the reality is there's just, a, um, there's just different calls in the struggle right now. And the way that um, white people and black people are called to engage, it's just different because we, we are assigned different roles in the system that we're overcoming and we need to resist mm. these false narratives that have been ascribed to us. So yeah, I think that's really true. Um, so what are you thinking about this week? Um, in CMS yesterday, uh, CMS is our Charlotte Mecklenburg schools and you and I both have children who are um, students at in CMS. Well, actually, I'm actually, sorry. Your son's at Union County. Sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry. No worries. Um, but we're both committed to public schools. Um, but I live um, in Mecklenburg County. So my kids are part of the CMS system. And um, initially, earlier this year, they had voted and said there would be an in-person three-day orientation on boarding, and then we would move to virtual learning. And this week, because the rates of infection in Mecklenburg County are so high, 10.8%, they had an emergency school board meeting yesterday, and um, they voted to go full remote for everyone, which I think was definitely the right call um, for the sake of children who, I, I mean, I still think, you know, rates are low among children, but also children have been way more socially distanced than anyone else because we closed all the schools. Um, but I also think just for the sake of, of the adults who care for children, Absolutely. that it's just not, it's not right, again, to tell mostly women and people of color, like, go in there, you probably won't die. And if you do, well, at least we got the economy going again, right? And, <laughs> and you know, given that the fatality rates are not evenly distributed among our, in our communities, that um, people of color are much more likely to die, to send children back into schools knowing that they could come home and be vectors. And even if they don't sick, they could, even if they don't get seriously sick, they could endanger the lives of their parents. I mean, it's just not, I mean, it's just not okay. Like we are not okay right now. Things are not normal. This is hard. And that's where we are. And if we want our kids back in school, we're all going to have to suck it up and wear masks and do the unfun things that we need to do to get this under control. That's a different rant. But what I've just been thinking about is um, I've been watching on um, not not really any of my personal friends, but just on social media, just watching mainly white suburban affluent parents scramble. Um, first, you know, a lot of moving kids into private schools and mm-hmm. charter schools to sort of say, we want our kids back in school no matter what. Like, we don't feel like they are threatened. And so 
this is what we want. And just that, that sort of un, uh, unconscious entitlement, which is just really um, extremely visible in this, in this moment. Um, and in fact, I have a, a, a friend who I went to college with who was, and does not live in North Carolina, but was saying online that her kids were going back to Catholic school and someone said, oh, I hope they still will. The infection rates are going up. And she said, oh, they'll go back because the school knows that we parents won't pay if it's virtual. Like if it's going to be virtual, then we'll just pull our kids and go to private in public schools. So, wow. I mean, just this entitlement of, of saying like, they're going to do it whether it's safe or not, because we'll, I mean, whatever. I mean, I just, it, it's complicated, but the spirit behind that is really mm-hmm. troubling to me. And, and the latest thing is lots of parents scrambling to say like, okay, um, I'm going to form sort of a small, a tiny school or a pod with, with friends and we'll hire a tutor and, and we're going to invest in this so that, you know, and the, and the things that parents say, like, like consistently what they say is, well, we have to do this because our children's education is really important to us. And they'll say, we have to do this because we both work. Right. And, and it makes me crazy because when you say that about yourself, what you are implying is my children's education is really important to me. So mm-hmm. if you're not doing it, it's because your kid's education isn't important to you. Like we value education in our household and anybody who's not doing what I do just doesn't value it in the way that I do. When the reality is like, you know, if other people had a spare $10,000 lying around, they might do it as well, but they don't. And that doesn't mean they value their kids' education less, right? So just, but just again, that bias and that stereotype that wants to say the reason that inequities exist in the system is because people who are disadvantaged don't care. They don't care about their kids like I do. They don't care. And then the even more astonishing thing that people say is, well, we both work. And I'd be like, how many people living in poverty do you know who don't work? I'm going to tell you how many more you than know. one job. I mean, zero, you know, zero a, cause you probably don't know any people living in poverty, but B mm. because you, you mean this, this myth that's still hanging around from the Reagan era of welfare Queens who are somehow working the system. So middle-class people are, are working so hard and paying in and other people are taking advantage of them. And I'm like, if you can't see right now that people living in poverty are doing incredibly essential work, Light, I mean, that you're staying at home doing your job for Bank of America, and it is uncomfortable that you have to do that and your kids, but you're not in danger of catching this virus. But the people who are working in the grocery stores, the people who are working in assisted living facilities, the people who are transporting patients around the hospital, these are all people whose kids are growing up in poverty. They work. And, and right now, the whole world agrees that their jobs are essential. And so I'm just so frustrated at the way we just, we just quickly um, work to recreate systems of inequality without even asking, isn't there another way? Like, couldn't we as a community organize and advocate for something different? And I was reading a story that was published in editorial in the Observer today, the Charlotte Observer today, written by two teachers who have taught in Title I schools. And they were just naming all of that, just um, that really what's happening is grassroots activism for 
privileged children. Like right now, mostly moms, affluent moms are on social media, like making plans, setting up structures. They're putting out job descriptions. This is who we're looking for. This is what we can offer um, to pay the teacher for our 11 kids and no other. And and the last line of the article was, um, don't accept for other children what you wouldn't accept for your own. And so the reality is if you as a mother know that this is what your child needs and what your family needs, then then why is it okay for you to just be like other families, whatever, like, I guess they don't value their kids' education and I guess they don't work. I mean, it's just, it's, it's lazy, entitled thinking and I'm frustrated by it. And I just think, you know, we could do a lot better and p- layer that on top of all the parents who said, oh, we have to go back to school because what about the poor kids? Like, I can't handle thinking of poor kids being home alone without, um, without good technology and without good support. But the second we go to all virtual learning, now you're not worried about the poor kids anymore. Now you're not saying like, oh, what can I do to make sure that these kids have the same resources that your kids do? Now you're just out there trying to take care of yours. And so that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. And so much of that emerges out of, you know, American individualism. Mm-hmm. Right. So the thinking is protect me and mine. And there's very little conversation, very little thinking about we and us. And you would think that at the very least, we would think in terms of the collective in the country against other nations. I mean, we don't even think, okay, our children, all children in this country need to do well because all children across the ocean are doing well in in such and such countries, right? No, our competition is, we're, we're, we're seeing each other as the competition as long as my child does better than those children across town. And yeah. we're all weakened and impoverished. Yeah, we, we see one another as as threat and not neighbor. Mm-hmm. And again, like for people who are Americans and completely formed by American culture, I get it. But for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, we need to just be able to recognize that loving your neighbor as yourself means you don't just get to set up a pod school for your kids and then give your thoughts and prayers for your neighbor's kids. And if I remember correctly, and tell me if I'm wrong, didn't the whole public school movement come out of the church? If I remember correctly, there was um, a woman in London, a Sunday school teacher. Um, She was concerned about kids in poverty. And so she started a school on Sundays to teach children, basically, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Right, not and just spiritual stuff. Yes, but that was it. also part of the curriculum, right? Because right. they wanted people to know how to read the Bible. But it transformed into, oh, the way of Jesus means educating all children. We want all children to be educated because we want all people to read the Bible. We want all people um, to have that skill. And so, yeah, this seems like... We're really um, moving backwards and going to be impoverished for it. And I I feel like I I also should just name 
another truth that I've been living with this week that is, which is very different, which is, um, I have seen the people in my community respond to a need of a family who were short, um, a couple thousand dollars to send their, by your community, you mean by your community, you mean congregation. I mean, yes, not just my congregation, but, but yes. And, and I guess like, it's important to point out that as I've been thinking about the response on one level of, um, let me just take care of my kid. I've also seen, um, people really reach out and say, here, I want to give something to help this family. I don't even know, send their kid back to college. And I guess, like, I don't know what to make of that except to say, you know, it's, it's, the capacity for both responses lies within all of us. And so it's really important as people of faith and particularly as faith leaders to, to really name and celebrate and nurture the one over the other. And probably my initial um, approach to this conversation wasn't super helpful in that it's not very helpful just to shame and blame. And, and it's, and it's more um, transformative for us to be able to cast vision for a different way um, to move forward. So, um, yeah. Well, we have this fear that there won't be enough. Yeah. Right. And so when it comes to an individual situation, I can give because that doesn't threaten the system in which I'm living, in which I feel a certain sense of security that I will have enough. Right. You start asking people to, change a system in which they are comfortable, then you start touching their fear of not having enough. And it's, well, it's a whole yeah. other. It's, it's interesting that you say that because one thing that a friend of mine named when we were talking about all of this, she was saying, I feel like a lot of parents are seeing this as an opportunity to solidify um, advantage for their kids, essentially to wow. say you know, the reality is we're all in the same boat, right? So if all kids are doing virtual learning, I mean, and we're not, right? Because privilege already puts some kids way ahead and some kids way behind. But but if but if we're all essentially doing virtual learning, then it's not like your kid is falling behind because every kid is doing it. But if you set up a pot school for your kid, then presumably, you know, my, my friend was saying, your, your kid is not only going to not fall behind, your kid is going to get ahead. And so it's a, it's a way of sort of mm-hmm. re- reinforcing the, this um, hierarchy within the structure as it is. And I think you're right to name uh, fundamentally our problem is we have just bought into the lie and myth of scarcity. So to say there's not enough to give everyone a good life. So some people are going to have to have a bad life. And so what I need to do is just make sure that the people I love have a good life. And that means I can't worry about helping other people out. I got to help myself first. And how ludicrous is that when it comes to education, right? There's not a limited amount of truth, right? Okay. We only got so much truth and these people get more of it than others. There's only so much history and you get, it's only so much math, right? Only so much grammar. No, there is more than enough for everybody. And so it just makes no sense. uh, Yeah. It's limitless. It is limitless of how much each one of us can learn and grow and the kind of brilliance that we all have to offer into the world. And the reality is the more equipped and empowered and educated we all get, the better we all are. Well, and and listen, if we tell the truth, 
there, there's a way that pastors do this with each other. I, oh, I think yeah. one reason you and I are friends is because we, we are not in competition. But I think you and I have both had the experience of either knowing or meeting another pastor. And the initial conversation is about the size of your congregation, the size of your budget, and you know where you went to school. And it becomes this, um, who's a little bit better than the other, right? And, and so this, this mindset of competition and you've got to be a little less than me so that I feel better about myself. Right. And, and, and as, pervasive. You know, as long, if we name that it's crazy to feel scarcity in the realm of education, how much more egregiously crazy is it to feel scarcity in the realm of the kingdom of God. Absolutely. There's, there is literally no limit on God's abundance. So the amount of abundance in your life in no way threatens or diminishes what, what God is doing or could do in my life. And, but you're right. I mean, again, I think it's just a, a testimony to the way that we sort of all exist in this hybrid American Christian culture. And so we try really hard to to overcome that and to really just recognize, oh, I'm functioning in a scarcity mindset right now. I'm seeing my my brother or my sister in Christ as my competition instead of as, you know, my my birthright. And so, um, yeah, that, that's that's yeah. And and if I were to engage in some true confession, you know, for me there is a great amount of anxiety in the season around the education of my child, yeah. not because. I want him to be better than others. It's because my outlook and my experience is that when he steps into a room, yeah. there automatically people are going to see him as less than. And so yeah. if he doesn't keep up, that is adding to the hill he already has to climb, yeah. right? And, and, and my anxiety is high because of that. Um, and I know my own challenges uh, coming through public schools, you know, when yeah. in the sixth grade, I had a teacher pull me aside and say, well, your people don't do very well in math, right? And that was a, a deep wound that didn't get healed for years and years, Right. I wasn't even able to talk about it for years. And so, you know, I have a lot of anxiety around um, when the dust begins to settle on this season. Um, what additional difficulties will my child have to navigate? Well, I mean, I think what is true um, is that this is a major disruptive event. And so, on the other side of this, we there's an opportunity for a radically different reorganization of of life and of reality and i think that there are forces in our world that are looking um to make that be a more just and equitable and abundant life for everyone and there are mm -hmm. forces in reality that are looking to um use this disruptive event as an opportunity to recreate structures that are even more um confining and, um, you know, and, and, and life threatening than before. Right. And so, I, I mean, I think that that's just very real. And I think that's why it's really important for us as pastors and as people in faith in general to really, um, leverage this time. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I think 
and I've, I've talked to you too much today, but I will just say the last thing I'm thinking about is, did you read the, um, I know you did, the editorial that John um, Lewis wrote to be published on the day that he died in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution? I um, have not. Well, I mean, it's, it, it is beautiful. Um, but I mean, essentially just says like in these last months, he has so much hope because it, he's seen the, the movements um, in response to instances of police brutality. And he's saying like, you know, Emmett Till was my George Floyd. And I, you know, and so he says like to see people in the streets and to see white people and black people in the streets. And like, he's essentially saying like, you all are my legacy. And I think, um, and, and, it, and he says like, that's why I had, even though it was the day before I checked into the hospital with what he clearly knew was his last, you know, his last days mm-hmm. said, I had to go to the Black Lives Matter, um, um, art on the street in Atlanta. I had to see it just because I, I needed to see it with my own eyes. And, um, and then he wrote this to say, like, I've asked this to be published on the day that I die. And it, it's, it's him sort of just naming, this is a, this is a, um, a moment that is pregnant with possibility, mm. even among all the disruption and the pain and the suffering, it's pregnant with possibility. And, and, and his, um, he's saying to, to people who are reading his words, like you are my legacy. And I, and, and, um, you know, I, I want to call you to, to act and I want to call you to, um, you know, whatever. I mean, his line is get into good trouble and necessary trouble and, and yes. all of that stuff. And I, I think that that's really fair that we don't, um, have to be lying on our deathbeds to take advantage of this extraordinary time and really do mm-hmm. deep work of saying, who, who do I want to be? What do I want my communities to be about? What do I want to stand for? And, and what, what legacy do I want to carry into the next season? And so, um, yeah, it's really, it's really powerful. So, um, what are you thinking about? You know, we did you. Yes. Did we? Okay. Well then, so what are you the thinking about? <laughs> no, no, no. I just told you. I was thinking about schools. I oh yes, to yes, yes. Um, no, the only thing left to say is I know what you're preaching about this week. <laughs> I know what you're preaching about this week. <laughs> so um, we this week are trying a, a new thing, <laughs> and I put in my blurb to the congregation. We send a letter out every Friday, um, just talking about worship that's coming up. And and I said something like, "We're trying a new thing, and it might be beautiful or it might fail, and I'm not scared of failure." And <laughs> And Rachel, our ministry coordinator, cut that line out. I was like, okay, I thought that was a good line. But I, anyway, um, we are, we recorded a dialogue sermon on, well, yesterday. Yesterday, yes. Um, We've spent a lot of time together on Zoom. This has been a big week for us. Um, And and it is on spiritual friendship and it is on Psalm 133. And um, I'm excited about it in general. I'm also just particularly excited that we were, done on Thursday afternoon. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> now, like I um, said to you, my wife yes. was thrilled. It's like, yeah. you've already recorded the sermon this week? What? Yeah. Yep. 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 She said, Yolanda was telling me before we started recording that she said that you, she told you that you needed to ask me like, what, what was the secret sauce? Like, yeah. Like, ready. cause this and needs I, to become a habit. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you just tell Han that the secret sauce is lower your standards, right? Like, this is the problem. <laughs> like you are, um, um, you just, anyway. Yeah, um, usually I'm editing the sermon video around 1, 2 a.m. Saturday night, Sunday morning. Um, so yeah, 
to have it done yeah, but on it, Thursday. What? Well, and it was just very fun that we were sort of like, our process was we, we knew what we were going to do and we had talked about it. And then we, we had another conversation to kind of map out like, okay, I would say this and you would say that and go to, and it was just so funny to watch both of us put this together and our personalities. And I would be like, I don't know, I'm going to say something like this. Blah, 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 blah. And you were like, I will write something down. <laughs> and then, so we got back together to talk through it again. And oh, I was I like, totally, okay, let's do it. And you I, were like, we will do it tomorrow. <laughs> okay. So um, I just feel like on a general level, but you it, are it, much, go ahead. You, you are much more full and open to the movement of the Holy Spirit than I am. But when it comes to like actually doing the tasks of ministry, I'm like, Let's go. The Holy Spirit will make something great happen. You are yes. Like, you will prepared. jump in. You're like, what? There may be water in the pool. There may not be water. I'm going to jump anyway. We'll see. It'll be okay. Yeah. And I'm like, no, unless I see water, mm, not really jumping. No, but, uh, so but it was, it was fun. But we, we kind of met in the middle because I probably would have stretched out a process a little longer. Mm-hmm. And you would have started earlier, and but we we met somewhere in the middle, and I think for a first attempt, I haven't watched the video in full, but I'm I, I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I, I think it's fun because honestly, not only have I ever I've never done a dialogue sermon, I've never seen one done either. Mm. So that makes me happy because I I really don't have any kind of construct in my head to compare it with, um, and I also just I, you know I just think it is inherently good and right um to try things um to try things that are faithful regardless of um whether or not they work but i just feel like god is always calling us to do something new and if we're afraid to take risks then we can't we'll never be able to do um the new thing that god is calling us to so um i just think there's no shame in swinging and missing in in the body of christ so anyway so that's what we're doing so um and i think next week um our podcast is going to be just the dialogue sermon. We're going to post that sermon. Mm-hmm. Right. So we won't do a podcast next week because uh, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Good for you. I'm excited because this is, this is the first time off I've had since, since after Christmas. So I'm, I'm ready for sure. So I'm excited. So hopefully I will not meet a hurricane or a shark, but um, it will be great. You're going to the coast. We're going to the coast, yeah, in South Carolina. So I'm I'm excited. We we just um you know that way we will we will have a little condo and we will just be in our house and be at the beach and um it's okay good. Fantastic. So um so yeah, so this is the part where I say thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about the Rida Church and Yolando, you should go um, and Google Derida Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, pop over to their website. You can look for Yolanda's messages um, on the Podbean website and uh, look for Derida Church. And and um, you can also look at their YouTube channel. There's some really great videos there. Um, Derida Presbyterian Church, right? Is that what they search? Derida Church. Derida Church. Okay. And if you want to know more about The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. And if you want to hear messages from The Grove, you can look for our podcast, which is on iTunes, The Grove Church Podcast. And um, if you want to see the dialogue sermon, which I mean, come on, who doesn't want to see it? (laughs) If you want to see us as well as hear us, um, 
it is going to be on the Derida Church's um, YouTube page mm-hmm. on Sunday morning, and we will um, premiere the video at the Grove Church on our on our Facebook page at ten o'clock. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening, and um, we will talk to you in two weeks. Thank you.